You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley. Are you ready to go? Oh, Oh. my gosh. (sighs) Okay, good start. Oh, I'm sorry. I was on a lag. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, (laughs) Okay, here we go. You guys miss me. Don't act like you don't. Yeah, it it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Um, uh, This is Kyle Worland. I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey, guys. What's up? Today is going to be fun because we're talking about Nephilim. And the dinosaurs. I mean, listen, if you if there was an episode where you're getting double bang for your buck, this is it. This I feel is like that episode. could be like a Netflix show or something like that. I want Nephilim someone- and the dinosaurs. Or maybe a band. We need a gif oh, definitely for a sure. <laughs> Someone's going to need to come up with a definitely. Knowing Faith meme of a Nephilim riding a T-Rex. Yes, Can you put please. Kyle's face on that too? Anybody, whoever's doing this, put Kyle's face on this one. I promise you. We, we've we'll already got traction. We've already got it. JT on a turtle. We'll mm-hmm. get me on a Nephilim riding a dinosaur. And then I don't know. We'll get a picture of Jen. Once we once we get to the historical books, we'll do Jen with a bloody tent peg or something. Yes, please. Um, well, uh, listen, we are exploring Genesis 1 through 11 this season. Today, we're focusing on Genesis 6 through 7. Um, so we're, we're jumping into the flood story. And uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And truly, we're going to probably have too much fun with this episode and some disagreements between the three of us on some of the things that are happening here. Let me just get us to Genesis 6. If you're just tuning in, We've wound up in Genesis 6 because we've walked through the story of Genesis 1 through 5. God created the whole world. He created it uh, in the first three days. We see him creating space. And and the the next three days, 4, 5, and 6, we see him filling that space. We talked about Sabbath day rest, that Genesis 7, or excuse me, that the seventh day of creation was supposed to be an unending Sabbath rest with God forever between God and his people. Adam and Eve, his uh, man and woman who had been created in the image of God. We talked with Dr. Russell Moore about the image of God and cultural mandate. We talked about Hannah An- with Hannah Anderson about men and women in Genesis chapter two. We dove into Genesis three and saw how sin was a disruptive force impacting uh, all of life and our relationship with God and the created order. We looked at the post-Genesis three account of exile, the birth of Cain, the murder of Abel, and how God is providentially governing the world, even through faithlessness of the people, the faults, failures, and sins of his people. And we explored in the genealogy of Genesis 5 that two distinct lines were really beginning to take shape and emerge, the line of the seed of the woman and the line of the seed of the serpent. And that really comes to a full contrast in Genesis 6. So when we open up to Genesis 6, we are really seeing, I would say, a blossoming of these two very distinct lines now because Genesis 6 opens up like this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then this verse, 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that, that, that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, oh boy, is there oh a boy. lot to talk about in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. <laughs> oh boy. So let's just start with this. How bad are things really when we get to Genesis 6? <laughs> because Genesis 6, 5 seems, it almost seems like a, like a, it's almost a parody. Like it's like, it's so emphatic. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, this just seems like lemony snickets, no good, very bad, worst day ever. I mean, just how much negative can you put in one verse? Are things this bad? Yeah. I mean, if you look back, you know, to the earlier portion of the text uh, with, why are you laughing? Why We're just you? laughing because there was a, like a delayed pause and then you go on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like, so, are things really that bad? And it's like, turn to the narrator. They really were that bad. <laughs> yes, Kyle. Yes, they were. Well, um, well yeah. <laughs> now I'm choking. Okay. So Lamech, you know, in, in the, in the genealogy, the, the genie, the, the unrighteous, and I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to this Kyle, because we're about to have a fight. So I want to make sure everybody knows what we're fighting for. Lamech's genial, Lamech is the end of the Canaanite genealogy. And he basically writes a, a poem of nastiness. Like he's just awful. It's about how he's killed people and he's a man of violence and blah, blah, blah. And then, um, you know, the, the righteous line, uh, the Sethite uh, genealogy ends with Noah, who's going to be the center of our story moving forward. So you're going to need those two lines. But yes, I think Lamech's poem is meant to show us just how bad things are. Um, but also, you know, we can we can take God's word for it. If, if, if he said it was bad, it was bad. God does not act capriciously. And so we said in, in a previous episode that what happens in the chapters immediately following Genesis 3 is that we are being led to see the viral um, nature of sin. Or maybe a better metaphor would be, you know, yeast is often used to describe sin in Hebrew thought and how yeast spreads throughout an entire lump of dough. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this spread this multiplication, this fruitfulness and multiplication of sin among humankind. Yeah, because things are bad. Like, and they're getting, they've gotten bad and they've gotten bad through these lines to such a degree that by the time you get to the, uh, you know, to the flood situation, you hear the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord God says, I'm going to blot out man. Like I'm just, I'm wait, wait. You total destruction. And then you have the very you can't just breeze Good. past that. You got you can't you got to talk about that. What do you mean God regretted that he made man? Well, yeah, See, I mean, this, this is where I want to fight. I'm I'm ready for this one. Well, Kyle okay. and I disagree about this. I don't know that we I yeah, I mean, I think that there's an important thing here, which is and JT and I have talked about this a lot and uh, we've talked certainly more about it off the show than we have on the show, but... Well, let's talk about it on the show unless well, I've convinced you. Are you saying well, I don't, I don't, you? No, I don't want to rush past Nephilim and Sons of God. So let's just put okay, a let's little do that first. Let's uh, do that first. attack in that. That's fine. Okay. So 
there's a question here, which is what are the sons of God and what are the Nephilim? Now I got to tell you, so, uh, one of the questions we get a lot from Knowing Faith listeners is, have you ever changed your mind about something? This is a this is a time where I have changed my mind. I am on the record on this show as saying, I don't know what the sons of God are in Genesis 6, but I know that they're not embodied angels having sex with the daughters of men. <laughs> wait, uh, unrighteous, wait, wait, wait. unholy, immoral, wait. evil Wait, slow down. First, what? you have to explain what is the problem? Like there's somebody bad has sex with somebody else and then a real bad thing happens. But the question is, who you, who's sleeping with whom? Right? Yeah, I well, yeah, I think so. I think that the, sto- that the question here is Nephilim are the product of what this is going to be. That's what right. I take it to be. Okay. But the sons of God... Uh, and I, in the past, I've said the sons of God, I don't know what they are, but they're not embodied angels. Yeah. Having evil, unholy sexual relationships with the daughters of men. I have right. changed my mind on that. I actually do think that they are fallen angelic beings who are having unholy, immoral, evil sexual relationships, unnatural sexual relationships with the daughters of men. Now, I don't know that you two agree with me on this. I would used to disagree with myself. I have changed my mind on this. I actually took a few weeks this summer and studied this passage and felt like, dang, I am 100% wrong about this. I've changed my position on this. Okay, so we have I think one that they vote. they are fallen angels. One vote for I'm angels. not going. I'm not going yet. I'm waiting. Uh-huh. Convince me. Here I am with my coffee mug. Convince me. Give me your take, Jen. Okay. So what have we been talking about? Let's, so, so Kyle is giving you an argument that's based on, um, how should we say it? Uh, he, he's, he's gone and dug into the commentaries and he's let people yell at him from both sides. Okay. So I'm going to give you my argument based on, which is fair. I'm not trying to denigrate his approach, but my approach. She was, is, she was about to say, Kyle has been convinced by the commentaries. I know. I've been I've, convinced by I've, the Bible. I have no. a biblical argument for my position. I just want no, to be I said, would n- so. You know, I would never say unbiblical if it's something that is something that's not clear. So, uh, so but my argument is based on the structure of the text, okay? So um, if you look at it, we just came out of two different genealogies. You had an unrighteous line and you had a righteous line. And not only that, but we have already touched on the idea that Enoch, uh, the city of Enoch was the city of man, which is this theme that's gonna be carried all the way through. So you already have a tension between um, the plans of God and the plans of man, the, the building projects of God and the building projects of man. And so then I think when we find ourselves at the beginning of Genesis chapter six, when it says the sons of God and the daughters of man, what we're hearing are those same two demarcations, um, that there are um, the daughters of the Canaanite line who are going to marry with the sons of the Sethite line. So the sons of God would be those in the righteous line of Seth and the daughters of man would be those in the, in the unrighteous line of Cain. And so what I believe is being given to us here is uh, well, either way, whether you go with Kyle's argument or my argument, it's an unholy alliance that is going to result in a dangerous offspring. But I would say that based on the text, it's just humans who are um, forming unholy alliances, not angels. So you, you think the problem, you think the problem is that, but like, but isn't that unusual? Because, well, I guess uh, that seems odd to me that two humans would come together and create what appear to be some sort of deviant 
procreation. Like the Nephilim are distinguished from, in, in a way, other humans. So, and you're saying that's the result of the line of, uh, the, the holy line, the sons of God. But that phrase, sons of God, isn't that such a strange way of saying it? It seems like why, I, I just, I don't know that I buy that. Well, like I, I saying, understand the genealogy thing. But why are you saying that Nephilim are like superheroes? Mutants. Well, the Neph- well, the Nephilim are, are definitely distinguished when they appear again in numbers th- as being some Giants. you know giant race. So I think if the numbers are if they're appearing later on in the story, and these Nephilim are you know what's Numbers thirteen say? I've got it here. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So it seems like the Nephilim are being distinguished as Tall people. I, I do think an unholy, yeah, <laughs> tall, yeah, violent tall people. people. But this is tall, violent people. <laughs> but why? Do, why are they the result of two humans getting together? That to me well, seems to be. I don't know because I, I just don't buy it. Okay, so I come from tall, peaceful people, right? My whole family are are, are really <laughs> tall. Uh, but but if you have because it said well look it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive. Well, right there I'm like ooh that sounds like first of all. That's ew, but it's it's basically saying that 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 people who were of the righteous line who should have known better than to make an unholy alliance with the unrighteous line went and did so, and then God who pro- who has promises both blessings and curses uh, carries out this this uh, cursed uh, effect on the offspring of that line that they're tall, violent people. Why do they have to be? Why do they have to be mutant ninja turtles? Yeah, but what is verse four? So verse four like makes it seem as if there is something odd that's happening. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Why is this of note if it's just what's been happening in the genealogy already? Because is it just because Moses, those two lines are converging? Because Moses is going to mention the Nephilim again. They're going to come back in the story later on. So we, we get a little heads up here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that later we go, oh, I remember those guys. You know why they're so terrible and they're enemies so you, of God? Because they came from these unions. The union between the, the line of, like the holy line and the unholy Yeah, come line. out from among them. Yeah, don't, yeah. But but instead they're like, hmm, she's hot. So uh, Jacob, okay. Jacob, I'm, your name's not Jacob. <laughs> JT's over there being really quiet. I'm yeah. just waiting, reading my commentaries. She's reading a commentary. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think? You got to tell us your yeah, vote because I, we're going to have to move on to dinosaurs. No. I obviously had an opinion before this, but I wanted to see if you could convince me. And I have not been changed, but I will double down. I agree with you, Jen. Oh, but you do? You don't, well, I, I do. Don't, I don't know that in principle, in principle, our our agreement here is actually the same. We actually think this is the result of the seed, the, the line of the serpent. We, yeah. Regardless of how you cut it, the difference is you think it's the human descent of the line of the serpent. And I'm suggesting it is the line of the serpent as the serpent is in one way, almost a federal head of the evil line. And that would include not just the humans of that, but all of the fallen angelic forces that kind of, uh, that go along with Satan. 
Now, Kyle, will you please saying, tell us? This, what, yeah, but the question is, is what is the what, what is the reference in this text? Yeah. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna make Jen happy here. Like what what is the Bible on in this <laughs> verse intending to say? With sons of God? Yeah. It certainly or, there's or Nephilim. Not, I don't know that there's a reference for that matter of calling anybody the sons of God prior to Genesis six. So that phrase is being introduced here in a way that is not indicative of anything that we're seeing in Genesis five. But are you suggesting, but are you suggesting that the, the line of the serpent could be referred to as the sons of God? Well, I I think that's what we're both, uh, I'm saying, well, no, she's, I guess saying that the daughters of men, but to me, it seems like, uh, we don't have the sons of God phrase seems to be unique here, but maybe daughters of man is unique as well. I don't know that I've given as much thought to that ascription as much as I have sons of God, but it seems to me that these, maybe it's both the, the, the daughters and the sons are being referred to here in a way that there is not a prior uh, uh, reference in Genesis with that title of sons of God or daughters of man. Is there... Right, but is there a later reference that is informing your reading? It doesn't just need to be a prior reference. Mm, well, I'm definitely thinking that behold, what the manner Nephilim of love the Father has this text. given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's my point. Is if we're taking. And we've been taking some flack on this on Twitter, a canonical reading. There are reference here that should inform our understanding of what is going on here because we believe in two authors of the text, right, Kyle? <laughs> Just making sure. No, to be fair to Kyle, there, there are a lot of people who ascribe to Kyle's view. Most of them are Mormon. That's fine. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but uh... <laughs> no, no, don't do that. <laughs> that is one of the best. Uh, see, here's, here's what we have. Kyle is ascribing to a Mormon view of angels. And I'm he gonna, also ascribes to a Jehovah's uh, Witness view of Christology. <laughs> okay, you, you, you two are the worst. <laughs> uh. Should we just end the episode now? Because Kyle and I, we have another big disagreement coming up here. About dinosaurs? keep doing this. No, no think- about the passability and impassibility of God. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, we've got so much ground to cover here. Oh my goodness. Um, I think here's what I would say is that it seems as if "sons of God" is a phrase that I know I, I was trying to search for the reference here, and I had it in earlier notes, and I've lost it. But I believe that First Peter and Jude both invoke the phrase uh, "sons of God" to reference fallen angels, and um, I'm not like without credence here. I found an article by William Cook. Uh, he's essentially, he's a, uh, professor of New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So it's not like I'm just over here winging it. And he (laughs) says, despite the obvious difficulties of the interpretation of sons of God being fallen angels, I believe the evidence points slightly in its favor, mainly because both Peter and Jude seem to have held it. He references 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, uh, and, uh, Jude, 
Oh, Jude 6. Any, any chance it was in the Doctrine of the Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price or the Book of Mormon? <laughs> You're so bad. Okay. We're going to move past this. We're going to move past this. But I do think, I will say this because we do need to get some other important topics here that are yeah. also fun to talk about. I will say, I, I'm often asked, is there something, do you guys ever change your mind? Because it can feel like oh, we yeah. get into these conversations and we've made up our mind on all these things and we're decided. But this is one point where over the summer as I looked at it, um, I really did feel like, man, because my big hangup was not on the phraseology here. It was on the embodiment of angels. Yeah. And that was my hangup was the ontology of angels, that angels could not have these kinds of relations. But if that's the argument, I don't think that argument holds up because we see a- embodied angels throughout the Old Testament and yeah. the New Testament. And we see that uh, angels are pried upon sexually in the, the tragic story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it does appear that like part of the great tragedy of Genesis, uh, of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that this possibility of uh, sexual abuse or sexual exchange between angels and men was a possibility. Uh, and so my previous reasoning, now Jen and JT have brought up some points that make me, I need to go back and look at this, but my previous reasoning for why this was not a viable interpretation, it did not hold water when I squared it with other instances of angels in the Bible. And I think that was a place where I felt like I can't keep holding this, at least not for that reason. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really good, Kyle. And I think, I mean, like, yeah, we do change our minds all the time. If we're not continually learning, then then really what are we doing? And you're you're a great example of constantly changing your mind after you have conversations oh, with Jen you're and I. So oh, bad. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I was actually going to say something kind about you. I just, it just couldn't do it. Couldn't I quite know. do it. Yeah. Um, I think for for listeners who maybe hear hear this or like hear disagreements between us, especially on things like this, an important category just to be reminded of is theological triage. That like, there's lots of things in the Bible that are just hard and challenging and over the history of the church, or even over the last few decades, there's lots of different interpretations on this passage in particular. And it's okay to have robust, good conversations with friends. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's keep going. Changing our changing minds. Um, Genesis... Uh, I'm sorry. Not We're going to need to turn this into like four episodes. Genesis 6, 6, the Lord regrets. The Lord regretted that he made the man on the earth and he gre- it grieved him to his heart. Okay. So let's talk about ways that this is handled. 
there is sometimes, which is a, what we might say is the pre, the prevalent reformed view, is that this language construing regret and grief is accommodation or lisping language that God's that the way that God reveals Himself here. This is from Calvin that uh, God cannot tell us the inner workings of the mind of God in a way. God is kind, this is a better way to say it. God is kind to talk to us about the inner workings of the mind and purposes of God in a way that we can understand. God doesn't regret anything, nor does God grieve anything because God doesn't experience an emotional life. This would be, you know, that God is impassable, okay? Um, God does not have an emotional life. He doesn't experience emotions because his experience of emotions would imply an experience of unknown or change, which would call into question his immutability, that he cannot change or experience change. Um, That is a very dominant way. And I am, that's the foundation I stand on. I am fine holding that position. I will say I struggle because particularly in the Old Testament, and in passages like this, you have to do, you talk about, you want to talk about reading the Bible. You got to just be a, a theological gymnast to say, and the Lord regretted that he made a man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, hold on. God didn't regret it and it didn't <laughs> grieve him. But, but really, do you, like, so I actually, uh, yeah. first Samuel 15. First, so I'm not even going to go to systematic theology or Calvin or the reformed tradition. 1 Samuel 15, verse, what is it? Verse 10, I think it is. Hang on. Oh, I'm on the wrong chapter. Yeah, 1 Samuel 10, 15. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret, same word, that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So the Bible says that the Lord can regret, right? Is that what you're saying? When you're saying it says it in Genesis 6, 6. I'm okay. saying that that is what the verse says. <laughs> I don't know what kind of entrapment you're, I, yeah, if you're asking me, what does yeah. this Bible say? I don't feel what safe does it for say? you right now, Kyle. Okay, great. Okay, same chapter. First okay. Samuel 15, verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have, in glory of Israel being a referent for God. Yep. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. So can God, God re- so can God regret? Well, I don't know. I mean, answer of, you know, Proverbs says answer full according to his folly. And the next verse says, don't answer, <laughs> answer a fool according to his folly. Okay. Uh, so I don't, I mean, we could probably point to a hundred places in scripture where we do get a tension that emerges between uh, God saying, I regret something. And then two, three verses later saying, God is not capable of regret. I think right. the, that but the this is happening in the same chapter. I understand that. And, but like there, we're, we're it's not a hundred places randomly referring to different things. Oh, well, it, hold on. You're making it seem <laughs> as if there's not a hundred places in the old Testament where the Bible describes the emotional life of God, because you, because for, of for course every, it does. Uh, of course it does. And it does so in an accommodating way. Why? Because God condescends. I'm not trying to suggest that it doesn't happen a hundred times. I'm saying we have one chapter. I was about <laughs> to watching, throw something. <laughs> That could very well be the case. It could very well be the case that every mention we have of the emotional life of God in the Bible and the Old Testament in particular is a reference 
as an accommodationist reference and a category that we would understand, but that isn't accurate about God because he couldn't speak to us in that manner. I just would say this, that seems to me in every argument I have ever heard for the impassibility of God to not be an argument. Do we need a timeout? You're no, saying timeout. You can keep going, but I, I need to say something at some point. Well, the, uh, <laughs> that argument is almost always squarely an argument that is uh, is interested in protecting the immutability of God. Uh, and, 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 and I would say even specific, more specifically, the simplicity of God. And the transcendence, uh, the creator creature distinction. You know, I, remember that thing that we no, said no, three no, or no. four episodes ago See, that we said is the most important distinction in systematic theology, <laughs> that God is the creator <laughs> and that we are the creatures and that we need to make those two things separate and distinct. I think you were the one who said that. <laughs> And so I, I, I agree. Let me ask and you this question. Are you trying to relate a creaturely experience to God? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> okay, JT, this is the, this is the problem with arguing with a systematician like this is that they like, they are absolutely convinced that to pull at any part of the fabric is to call into question the whole tapestry. And the reality is, is that's not the case. If God grieves, if he regrets, he experiences those emotions in perfect consistency with his nature and his character, which is qualitatively different than how we experience those things as creatures. There is no problem at all with saying God experiences an emotional life, but when he experiences them, he experiences them with absolute divine perfection. When he's grieved, he is only grieved for that which is absolutely grievous. And when he experiences grief, he experiences it in a completely perfect way that's consistent with his character and his nature. You don't lose, I don't believe that you lose what theologians are what impassable theologians are going to say you must you mean christian theologians mm. oh my gosh okay. you are very Guys. much you didn't say what you need to say sister or i'm gonna i'm not this. moving yeah. past this yet i've got one more thing to say no. oh no really do you Go really ahead, okay in the interest yeah. you of, don't get the last word on this one in the interest of baby dinosaurs everywhere can we please look back at the text itself everyone guys you got your bibles well, we open were just looking at the text hang on do you have your bibles open Mine's open. I don't know. Listeners, if, listeners, please. He probably has Aristotle's metaphysics open. But. Listeners, please turn to Genesis chapter six. Nope. Yep. Chapter six, uh, starting in verse five. Okay. You ready? Okay. Now I want you to think back because uh, we're in Genesis, right? So remember in, in Genesis chapter one, where we had the creation account, right? Guess what the flood's going to be? It's going to be a decreation account, okay? So what's what does God say at the end of the creation account? It says that God looked on everything that he made and behold, it was what? It was very good, right? Okay, so what's the first thing that we see in the decreation account? That he looks on everything that he has made and it is not good. He's sorry about it, right? And so then look what happens next in verse seven. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. Oh, well, because what day was man created on? Day six. I will blot him out from the face of the earth. And then, I, so man and animals, what day were they created on? Day six. Then the creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were created on day five. Uh, for I'm sorry that I have made them. So what's happening here? He's going backwards in the creation account and he is decreating. So, I, I mean, I guess I care whether God feels or not, but I'm more interested in what we're supposed to take from this based on the way that the passage is written. And it's basically setting us up for what will be a decreation account by reversing what we heard in Genesis chapter one. 
That's true. And you're right. That is like in terms of the narrative flow here, we are, that is a very good way of capturing what is at play. And JT and I are definitely playing the 1.5% <laughs> area of disagreement we have. Yeah, then we talk about the character of God is 1.5%. No, uh, that is how you treat this passage. Here, that is how you're treating this passage. So I'm not surprised that's what you said. Okay. <laughs> I, I I am equally I need a concerned flood right now because what in Denver? <laughs> there's yeah exactly yeah and, and specifically let me give out his address so you can dox him online. You but, better you better no, get I, on that no, turtle because you're gonna need it. <laughs> Jen, you Jen, you agree with me on this? Don't don't uh, don't answer that, Jen. I don't want you to weigh in on this conversation. <laughs> don't weigh in against me here, okay? I've <laughs> no, I listen. Let, I, let the listener. No, that Jen nodded her head. No, she did not. Um, I don't think that changes his mind. I don't. You count it. I have not suggested that God has changed his mind. Well, he's a little. It's exactly what you just said. No, what I'm saying is that it it could be possible in divine perfection for God to grieve and regret in a way that is consistent with his character, his nature, and his will. And I'll tell you this, if we have, we, we seem to have no problem stating and stating with absolute abandonment, the positive emotional life of God. We, we have no problem walking around talking about the love of God, the delighting love of God. That's true. This is true. This is, we, 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 we walk around and there's no hand wringing about whether or not we can say it or not. And we don't put a bunch of asterisks on it, but when it comes to the op, the same is true about the wrath of God and his judgment against sin. We have no problem talking about that. But there's all this little reformed hand-wringing when we get to the grief of God. And yet the Old Testament regularly talks about this very thing. And I feel like it is a it is is one it's inconsistent that we are very it's not, easy. It's not at all because this is you un, uh, again Kyle I love you brother you're undermining the simplicity of God which which tells us that God's emotional life is fundamentally and functionally different than humans regardless of whether it's a positive emotion a negative emotion or a chain of change and you're, of mind. And, and you're holding on to the simplicity of God which I do not believe I is understand the facto <laughs> necessary architecture for our doctrine of God Okay Wait, so can then I ask here's it? my my question I told okay. you I was going you can, you can, this is, this is the one question I want to ask Kyle. If what you're saying is true, why the incarnation? Well, if God can redemptively act in his own emotional life, whether that being love mm-hmm. or wrath or grief or redemption, why would the son of God need to become incarnate in order to act upon those things? And we've talked about this before. And I would say that that is the, if we're looking for an area where you and I can meet in the middle on, it's that I would say that there is a better argument to be made about the, uh, from the incarnation as the means by which God acts in this way in the world and communicates the, uh, the true. But that's, not, but that's not what I'm asking. Why the incarnation? Well, I, I don't know that I, I I don't know that I would say that if we have a God who is passable, meaning He experiences emotions with all the caveats I've given to it. I don't know that I, I I've seen that that is the that would be the logical uh, that would uh, 
undo the need of the incarnation or the redemptive work of Christ. I think we're having a question about whether or not God in his interior life experiences emotions, not whether or not the son of God in incarnate flesh was needed for the salvation of mankind. I think that you could say that God would have to assume human flesh to pay the well, Because part of the emotional life of God is tied to the incarnation as he bears the wrath of sin, extends love towards sinners in a way that only is possible, you would argue, I would think, through the incarnation. So it's only by adopting a deep view of impassibility and simplicity that the incarnation even makes sense. That could possibly be true. Guys. That's that the could furthest be the you've gone. We are, we've That's the made furthest you've through, gone. Thank you. I can drop it, through, it there. We made it through verse eight <laughs> of chapter six. <laughs> I told you we're going to do three or four this episodes. Is, this is a fun one though. It's probably true. Had it okay, never but, rained before. What? <laughs> Are you trying to, you're trying to talk about the flood I'm, now? No, I'm not doing it. I, I'm, I'm not doing to, it. I'm I shut you it. down right now. I rebuke you in the name of dinosaurs. <laughs> now, I, I do think though, since we now clearly do not have time to talk about the flood in any meaningful uh, manner <laughs> I think we could cover at least um, flood narratives in the ancient Near East. And I think that mm -hmm. we could discuss dinosaurs, but I do not think that we should talk about the rest of chapter six because I feel like right, the, we'll, Lord, we'll, we'll, the we'll, Lord would judge. We'll, we'll move the flood on. So let's talk about ancient Asian stories and let's talk about dinosaurs. Okay. So we're going we'll to call Eastern. this episode, we're going to call this episode <laughs> the Genesis six circus. That's what we're going to call it. <laughs> Uh, let's start with ancient Near Eastern stories. Is, Jen, is this the only ancient Near Eastern story that includes mention of the flood? No, Kyle. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get us back to softball territory. Don't me for it. Do you remember last, last time we did this and Kyle talked about the Bible as coverage, as if it was a sports <laughs> metaphor? I still haven't gotten over that. So the coverage so far is... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, oh, no. I can't wait to see you next week because I am going to hit you so hard. <laughs> it is gonna be, I'm going to take your breath away. Uh, you always take my breath away, Kyle. Uh, okay, <laughs> awkward. So, yes, um, one of the things that it's really important for people to hear is uh, often something that people learn too late in their in their uh, learning curve with with the story of the flood is that there are actually literally hundreds of these stories out there in in. And I don't say literally the way I saw literally, like there are literally uh, hundreds of flood <laughs> traditions across cultures um, that are actually very similar. Uh, many of them are, have a lot of the same elements of the flood account that we have here of Noah. So they talk about a family that receives favor. They talk about survival um, due to a boat. Um, they talk about... Um, the disaster being brought upon due to man's wickedness, um, about animals being saved, about survivors that end up on a mountain. Um, some of them even include birds being sent out uh, and, and things like that. So, so then people find this out, like usually when they go to college or, you know, they're in a Bible class or something and they're like, what? So then is our flood story just right. a ripoff? And like the most, the, be the best known one is the, the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's the one you hear about the most. Um, yep. So then- 
what are we supposed to think then? Is is Moses just, did he hit a lazy writing season and decide that he was just going to take someone else's story and use it for his own purposes? Like, how do we answer this? Because this is, this can be a, people leave yes. the faith yeah, over that's this. My, that's my, that's my position. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but like yeah. people leave the um, faith, so help, no, help but somebody I think you're stay right. Christian. Well, so listen, one of the, we've talked about this already a lot, which is that God reveals himself in a way that is kind to his people and that makes sense with the, the scope of the world. I think that what we see with the abundance of flood narratives in ancient Near Eastern is resounding proof that a, a, a worldwide flood occurred. Uh, and I think that, that, uh, that the abundance of those stories does not discredit the story of scripture, I think it gives a lot of credence to the story of scripture. People often will treat the flood and the flood narrative as some sort of absolutely bananas kind of idea. Well, would you feel that same way if you knew just about every ancient Near Eastern story contained one? You know, if, if you and I were having a conversation about what happened yesterday and you mounted a hundred people who told me a football game happened yesterday at seven o'clock and maybe all of them saw the football game from a different angle. But if we were talking about what happened, did a football game happen or not? And a hundred people say, yeah, football game happened, but maybe this little bit is different on my view of it. I would go, wow, great. We have a lot of good credence for suggesting that a football game happened yesterday. And I think the abundance of the ancient Near Eastern stories don't diminish the credibility of scripture's account of the, of the flood. I think that actually in any ways, it, 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 it uh, strengthens the credibility of scripture's witness. Then it becomes a question of which flood account seems to be most coherent with the state of the world. And if you get into these ancient Near Eastern stories, many of them read like uh, a stained glass window with a bunch of panes punched out of it, okay? They don't, they, they are not nearly as cohesive as the story that you find. The Epic of Gilgamesh is the closest one, but even the Epic of Gilgamesh, which also involves a dragon, uh, beast to note, uh, which I think is also an important note in terms of overlap and credibility. But I think that when you get into those stories, you realize, I'll tell you, you read the Epic of Gilgamesh and then you read the flood story and you tell me which one of them seems to be more coherent. I, I, I'll put $100 on the fact that you're going to weigh down and say, yeah, this Genesis 6 story seems to be mo more coherent with the natural order of the world and with the flow of history. That's my take on it. So I don't is, know, the, is that what you were looking for? Is the for, dragon Jen? in the Epic of Gilgamesh, is that the dinosaurs? Have we gotten to that part yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I am ready to talk about dinos. Yeah, no. Are you ready I, to talk about dinos? Yeah, I think it's time. I mean, I totally agree with you on the on on that reading of why those those stories exist. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it means that something big happened. I do think it's important for us to discuss. You said it, it bears evidence that a worldwide flood occurred, um, but there's a lot of discussion among scholars, biblical scholars about whether the flood had to be a worldwide flood or whether it could have been a regional flood, mm -hmm. um, like a known world yeah. kind of event. Um, do you have a strong feeling one way or the other sure. on that? You do? You know, that's a good that's a good question. My take on it is that it is a cosmic worldwide flood. I think if we are to understand um, that it is a remaking of the world, and I think that, again, I think that what we're finding in the flood story is that this flood is like, it's all-encompassing. And I think that if this is a recreation narrative or a decreation narrative, I think it's got to be all or nothing. And I think that, this, that the... Uh, 
uh, even we're seeing some resonances from a biblical theology perspective between the, the chaotic waters of Genesis 1 and 2, or Genesis 1 verses 1 through 2, and the flood story. So to me, it seems like, well, I, I don't have a reason to think that it's not a cosmic flood. Or, or a worldwide catastrophe. And I think if it's going to be a judgment of the world, because sin did not just break humanity. The, the judgment here is not just humanity, and that's detailed at the beginning of the account, right? It's the birds, it's the beast, it's the whole created order. And I think if that's the case, this is a all of creation thing. That's a, that's a really good argument that's that I have not, I haven't heard it said that clearly. Um, would you say that someone who doesn't believe that it is a worldwide flood is outside the pale of orthodoxy? Like if they say, well, it definitely had to have no. wiped out humankind or so you would not. Okay. Mm-mm. That's good to hear. That's, I think that's, no. that's good. No, I, I, I think in the same way that what we're about to talk about with dinosaurs is just like for the record, what we're about to talk about with dinosaurs is almost 100% canonical and biblical imagination and speculation. Because anybody who tells you they got a biblical case to make for dinosaurs is out of their mind. It just does. I just, it doesn't exist. And that's not to say you can't have a good position on it. It's just to say I don't. The Bible is not addressing dinosaurs. You better say more things because you just made it sound like they don't exist. Like that dinosaurs are fake. You were like, anyone who's making a biblical justification <laughs> for dinosaurs is out of their mind. That's what you no, said. No, They're, no. They were, they were put there by Satan to Dinos- UFOs in order dinosaurs, to- <laughs> dinos- here's, here's my take on dinosaurs. Dinosaurs existed and died before the beginning of redemptive history. So I take a old earth view to creation. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not spreading any lies here. I've been consistent on this. I take an old earth view to creation and I believe in plant and animal death before the fall. And I take it that dinosaurs existed prior to uh, uh, prior to uh, creation, f- further back than humanity, further back than Adam and Eve, and that they are essentially a prehistorical uh, creature that did not exist on the same kind of time span as Adam and Eve in the garden or as Noah with the flood. I do not take plant and animal death to be moral in nature. And I see that the dinosaurs could have been created and existed. And they certainly are far older than anything that we would have in terms of humanity. So that's my take on dinosaurs. I don't think dinosaurs were in the flood. I don't think they were killed in the flood. I don't think they were on the ark. I don't think that Adam and Eve would have walked around dinosaurs. I don't think there were velociraptors in the garden or outside the garden. I think that they had come and gone and were dead long before uh, uh, the garden was planted. And because of that, we are now able to reap their fuel and drive around in our cars. So every time you turn on, I think every time, like like Rudolph Boltman said about turning on, Rudolph Boltman said about modernity, he said, you know, uh, some some crazy outlandish thing about every time you turn on a light bulb, you know, you essentially deny the virgin birth or something. I, <laughs> he was bonkers for that, but I would say that every time you fill up your car with gasoline, you essentially acknowledge that dinosaurs died millions and millions and millions, <laughs> if not billions of years ago. That's my hot I, take on dinosaurs. That was a hot one for sure. I don't know. <laughs> do you agree Rudolph, or you, do you disagree? I don't know who Rudolph Voltman is, but I am now really concerned about your social life. You need to get out more. Uh, <laughs> Uh, wow, Kyle, I didn't know we were going to talk about that much about dinosaurs. Uh, I think your position is compelling. JT, anything? 
Oh yeah, JT's mouthing like he's talking, <laughs> like it, like his like his mic is off. Yeah, I okay. don't know. I really don't. No, this is one of those things. It's like I, I just like I don't want to take the easy out. Like, well, the text isn't answering the question. No, I don't mean that as an easy out. That's an important hermeneutical principle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just mean like you know how there are some things that you're just like I don't care. Yeah, and I don't care to like spend a lot of time thinking about it, yeah. and I don't care to spend a lot of time like. And maybe that makes me a bad theologian or something. I just don't, I don't know. And I don't care. And I've got a lot of other really important things that I need to think about <laughs> that. Like, like, I, like, I think what Kyle says is compelling. I'm like, yeah, that could be it. Mm-hmm. It could also be, you know, I just don't know. I think the important thing that we should all take away is that neither Kyle nor JT nor I thinks that dinosaurs are fake. That the, that the, that the yeah. skeletal <laughs> record is fake to make us think. They may have been put there by UFOs in yeah. order to help us not no. believe in God anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's not the case. When they lived, um, how they died, no, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. My, my big kicker is that I, uh, I, I think that when, we th- when we're talking about dinosaurs or when we're talking about death, I think that there is often a mischaracterization that Genesis 3 brings death into the world. I would say that I don't know that that to be true. I think that Genesis sure, sure, sure. No, I hear that uh, separation from God and physical and spiritual death from God. So a lot of times people would suggest, well, how could the dino- dinosaurs have existed prior to Genesis three? They couldn't have died, and if they are, they're either far younger than we think they are, which is typically what people suggest, is that they were killed in a cataclysmic flood, and because of the unique flood and topography conditions, their fossils aged at a very unusual rate. It just feels to me like, listen, the same dating that we use for dinosaur bones is the same dating we use for manuscripts. It's carbon-14 data dating. So either our manuscript dating system is off or the fossil record is off. But to me, it just seems like dinosaurs seem to be remarkably old, older than the history of the world. And that poses no problems for Christianity or the story of the Bible at all. Mm-hmm. So if you feel like, man, I'm super concerned about dinosaurs and how the Bible doesn't address them, <laughs> I would go, the Bible isn't addressing them. Don't be concerned about dinosaurs. They lived, they died, and God's word is not imperfect and it's not fallible on this front. I, I will say that, Kyle, again, I'm not disagreeing with you. Uh, that is where I struggle the most is just as as a systematician thinking about the category of death and placing that before the fall. You said something that helped helped me think about it in non-moral terms, which is helpful, but that that's just always been a struggle for me, which makes me not want to think about this anymore. I get it. Yeah, I think oh those who are concerned about them being fitting on the ark, because I know that some of it and people are like, the question I get all the time is, was it baby dinosaurs that they put on the ark? And I do think that's something we can explore when we get further into the flood narrative is when it says that he had two of every kind of animal, <clears throat> do we mean that literally two of every single kind of animal were kept on the ark? So maybe that's a nice little cliffhanger to, ha- to, to, to leave us with. Uh, at the end of this crazy episode that did nothing that this, it set out to do. This is a, we're going to have to read. I defended the doctrine of God. This is oh, what this episode was intending to do. We need to end this quickly before I have a, like, like legitimately, like I have a meltdown. Um, okay, no, li- li- we, we should end this in a way that actually reflects something here. We, the three of us, entered into this episode knowing that we were going to disagree on these topics. And it's not that these disagreements don't have real connections. It's to say that 
not any one of us believes that the any the, of the other three are uh, heterodox. Yeah. Um, we all we all believe that essentially we are trying to make the best sense of the material mm-hmm. here. We believe that God's word is authoritative. If Jen and I disagree about sons of God language in Genesis six, or JT and I disagree about grief and regret language, we're doing so within this kind of crucible of doctrinal exploration. That's yeah. what I said early on, which is that if I have to put my feet down anywhere, then I'm going to land where the tradition has land. But something that JT and I have talked about a lot. And I think it's important. And something that Knowing Faith tries to do is we are not just interested in the uh, theological defense. We're Mm -hmm. interested in constructive theology, which Mm -hmm. is building and engaging things. And it's, I think it's one of the unique virtues of this show. So if you walk away from here and you're like, wow, I'm really struggling with something, know that part of what we're doing here is doing some exploration. You're invited into that. But at the end of the day, you should be really confident. God's word is clear on matters of crucial significance. It is clear and uh, under the doctrine of the illumination, I'm I'm either wrong on this because I'm a bad reader because of the hurdle of sin or something else, but God's word is not wrong. Mm-hmm. It is not wrong in anything that it testifies to. So, so we may, me or Jen might be wrong. We might both be wrong, but what's not wrong is God's word. That's JT right. or I might be wrong. We might both be wrong, but what's not wrong is God's word. Mm-hmm. Our disagreements and conversations here are not a fruit of the fact that God's word is not clear or is wrong. It's a fruit of our attempts against our inabilities to truly understand it. We come to the text as intellectual dependence. So, Well, and as we've said before, you know, uh, that my ripoff comment, and I, I'm not sure if I attributed it properly the last time I said it, so I'm going to make sure I get it right this time. Uh, but Alistair Begg said, main things are plain things, plain things are main things. And JT and Kyle and I are not disagreeing on any of the main or plain things in the text. In fact, it's a luxury to start entertaining the kinds of questions that we have now frittered 45 minutes on in this episode. Um you know, and sometimes you just want to go there. But the reality is that the the, the flood narrative is in no way, um, uh, d- we can talk about the flood narrative and come away with exactly what we need from it. And then these other questions might be things that we think about, you know, they're good questions to ask, but they're not going to diminish the the main thrust of the story for us or the message that we're supposed to take away. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if you're still with us, and you would like to join the conversation or to, or to levy a disagreement, uh, which we have done, you can find us on social media at Knowing Faith. We're at Knowing Faith on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You can find us there. You can go to patreon.com slash knowingfaith and find out some of the cool stuff that's going on there. In our next episode, we will actually look at the flood story. Yay! <laughs> We will get there. We're going to get to that rain. Um, Genesis and, uh, may turn into like four seasons or something like that. Oh, oh Lord, it. let it be unto I, me as you have said. I know. I was about to say, that is going to make Jen very happy. Listen, hey, we're, we're glad for you listening. Glad for you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.